Okay, so um, today's discussion uh, is um, about kind of like an entire area of Torah study that is uh, often misunderstood. Uh, and it's, it's important not only to know uh, what it is and how to learn it, but also to kind of learn it, because the lessons contained within uh, this form of, of, of Torah instruction could be very critical. Now, um, we have the, the words of Maimonides when he talks about the people and their attitudes towards Agadic Talmud. Now, when we use the term Agadita or Agadic, it's a, it's a, it's, that's the Aramaic word. Uh, which mean, it means uh, it's the Talmud that deals with philosophy, with ethics, with morals, uh, with everything that's not straight up law. It's everything that's more about behavior uh, and philosophy, uh, kind of things that you should understand or behave. Uh, and there's a, a, a marked difference between the method or, or the modality of instruction in the Agadita versus the law, wherein the Agadita is always presented in the form of stories, parables, metaphors, uh, euphemisms, little one-liners that, it, and it, you read it at face value, never, the message is never being conveyed. Uh, as an example, if y'all remember, I gave a class here about a year ago uh, on a Talmud that reads that, as follows, that there's uh, three things are a measure of the world to come. Uh, who remembers what they are? What are the three things that are measurable to come? Torah. No, not Torah. Not Torah. No, 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 no. Three things are a measure of the world to come. Nope. Noops. Three things are a measure of the world to come. So no one remembers. Shabbat was one. The sun is another one. And the mystery word. And the mystery word, which when we ended up, Talmud ended up saying it means going to the bathroom. Thus, the Talmud says, this world to come, this one wonderful like end goal of, of spiritual uh, uh, endeavors, it's comparable to three things in this world. The mitzvah of Shabbos, the sun, the celestial being that we have, right, that's 93 million miles away, and going to the bathroom. That's it. That's what the Talmud says. That's the instruction. What was the last thing? Going to the bathroom. Using the restroom. Huh? It was a good class. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, going to the bathroom. That, that's it. Now, when, when I read that Talmud first, I, I thought maybe I, I was missing something. Like, that's the beginning and that's the end. And there's no explanation. There's no footnotes. There's nothing that says, oh, let me explain this to you, what the lesson is actually being conveyed. Now, I, I spent many months trying to figure it out, and I found in many other places these ideas being referenced, and I put all the puzzle pieces together, at least not all, what I thought to be a lot of puzzle pieces together, and what it turns out, that this particular piece of Talmud is saying fantastic lessons, wonderful lessons, and, uh, and the insights uh, could guide us, really, in, in how we approach some very crucial elements of our life. Uh, so that's an example of uh, an a, a agadic statement uh, having to be interpreted because it's masked in the form of a parable or an example or a story, etc. I found another one. This is yesterday. Uh, another one that says as follows. And by the way, like these, these, are, um, these are starters. Like I, I don't know where it goes from this. So I found in the Talmud yesterday... It says as follows. It says there's three 
keys that are only in the hands of the Almighty. There's other keys that the Almighty gives out, and there's three <coughs> keys that are in the hands of the Almighty. Number one, for, um, uh, for, uh, um, uh, for livelihood. There's no angel, there's no spiritual force in charge of that, uh, of that department. Only the Almighty. Number two, uh, for having children, for the miracle of life. And number three, for reviving dead people. These are the three keys that are in the Almighty's hands, and no one else has it, as opposed to the rest of the keys, the rest of the, all the wonderful things in the world, they may be in the hands of, of intermediaries, proxies. It looks like if you look at Genesis, uh, God tells Abraham that those who bless you will be blessed, which is interpreted to mean that Abraham now is kind of a, uh, he, you know, he's an opinion with regards to blessing. The, you know, thus, uh, if you bless the Jewish people, well, then by nature, by, by dint of that, you'll be blessed as well. But these three things are exclusively in the hands of the Almighty. Okay, so what are the three things? Uh, 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 livelihood, having children, and, and reviving the dead. We're good, okay. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, but then I thought about it a little bit. This is yesterday afternoon, and by the way, I don't have any conclusions. This is just my thoughts. Uh, I thought about it, and I remembered uh, that the Talmud elsewhere, in the entirely other end of the Talmud, says, um, um, and this may be particularly relevant uh, to you, Steve, uh, it says, what does a person need to do and become wealthy? What does a person need to do and become wealthy? And it gives instructions. You do a lot of business, you do business ethically, and then you pray. Those two things. means you do your own personal effort, Plus you pray. Okay, that's what the Talmud says. Fantastic. What does a person need to do, the next thing the Talmud says, and have male sons? Male sons. Okay, I guess the, you prefer to have them. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, that's what it says. What does a person need to do to have male sons? And it describes, it's kind of a, it's kind of a little uh, sex education from the Talmud, whatever. We'll skip that part. Um, check it out yourself. It's in Talmud and Nita 71a. Uh, 70, 70B to 71A. Uh, it says, marry, who, do, who are you supposed to marry and what are you supposed to do? Oh, and pray. And the last thing it says, what does a person do and become, uh, and, 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 and become a, a Torah scholar? And it says, you study a lot of Torah, you don't spend so much, so much time doing other things, and you pray. So three things it talks about. Number one, how to have livelihood. Number two, how to have male sons. And number three, how to become wise in Torah. And all three of them, it says to pray. And I was thinking that maybe these three, these three things are parallels. That uh, livelihood, uh, livelihood how, do you have, how do you become wealthy? Well, livelihood, that's the key of the Almighty. I.e., the prayer is the way to compel the Almighty to use that key. The, the prayer is how we intercede on behalf of the Almighty to use that key. Of course, if we just pray and don't do anything about it, well then... It's not going to help. You can't just say, you know what? Well, it's the, the money has a key. I'm just sitting praying. That's it. I'm not going to get a job. I'm not going to do anything. Wait for the money to descend in a parachute in my backyard. That doesn't work. You can't do one without the other. You know. Similarly, uh, uh, we said that another key is in the hand of the Almighty, and that is uh, having children. So here it says, well, male sons. Okay, whatever. But that's the same idea, uh, that you do what you need to do, plus you pray. Thus, the prayer is interceding on behalf of the Almighty to use that key. 
And lastly, I was thinking that maybe when it says to revive the dead, maybe when someone becomes a Torah scholar, there's a certain measure, a certain element of enlivening someone. How, how do I say so that? it's not literal? It's, it's well, I think it could be literal. I think it for sure could be literal, of course. Um, and, and the, the commentators talk God about... can't give any, any human the power Well, we do find with Elisha, Elisha in, in the Bible, Elisha and Elio and, and Elijah, they both revived uh, the children. And the, the, there's another Talmud elsewhere that talks about Elijah swapping peas, which is very bizarre. Because you know, Elijah himself, he revived the dead. Well, how did he revive the dead if it's the, it's, it's the Almighty's key? <coughs> well, the Almighty gave him that key. Fine. But then there was another story where he, he prayed that it should rain in order to make the roads so sloppy that people wouldn't go to commit idolatry. So then God says to him, okay, I have three keys, and I'm going to give you two of them. Well, it doesn't make sense that you should have two and I should have only one. So Elijah says, okay, we'll swap. So he gave him the one for the rain, which is the livelihood. And then he got back. He got the one for reviving the dead, which is yeah, pretty interesting. Uh, but I was thinking that maybe you know we talk about Torah as being Torah study as being not just the, about acquiring knowledge, but it's 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 life for the soul. You know, the soul that doesn't have Torah. The Torah is compared to water. Amayim uh, Torah. The Torah is compared to uh, to oxygen, like Rabbi Akiva said. The Torah in 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 the Bible itself is compared to bread. Right. You, right, if you just have bread, could you live? No, you have to have Torah as well. Right? We're told again that Torah, it is our life. So there's an element of Torah infusing someone with life. So maybe when it says that how does someone acquire Torah via study and hard work and, you know, and, and not focusing on other things, plus prayer, once again, there's another way to unlock the, uh, the third key that is reviving the dead. This is like a little stub, I call it, a little stub. Like you go know, Wikipedia, this article's a stub. This is a stub. Like this is an idea of, of keys and, 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 and warehouses and unlocking. It's a very intriguing idea. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of ways to go. But that's what I was thinking. That's a stub. I don't know where, where, where it will go. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Maybe it will percolate into something more substantive. But that's just an idea. Um, so, that's, so that's how we kind of go about approaching uh, studying this kind of, of Talmud. Uh, so today, I picked a piece of Talmud um, in the book of Tainus. Tainus means a fast day. We know that in the Jewish calendar, there's six fast days. Uh, two of them are like big-time fast days, and four of them are minor fast days. So two major and four minor. The two major, of course, are Yom Kippur, as we all know, and Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av. Uh, and the four minor ones are the fast of Gedalia, the tenth of Teves, the um, uh, Tainus Esther, the day before Purim, and uh, the seventeenth of Tammuz. Uh, okay, so but that's the book. What the book talks about. Uh, that's the content matter of the book. But in page twenty and twenty A, we find the following, uh, the following teaching. Now we're going to read it, and it's going to sound very strange. I assure you. Uh, and we're all going to have a lot of questions. And I assume someone, someone's going to say, this is, this is wrong. You know, what's happening here is wrong. Uh, and we're going to try to address and ask all those important questions and, you know, critically analyze it and see if there's some sort of lesson that we could take. Or maybe we could just put it as another stub. Who knows? We'll make a little stub hub for our stubs. So, 
Too expensive. <laughs> so the, the Talmud starts off uh, with the following instruction. A person should always be soft like a reed and not stiff like a cedar. Okay, and then tells us this great story about Rabbi Eliezer. So there was a story with Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Shimon, who was coming from Migdal Gedor, from the house of his rabbi. So he was traveling, and he was riding on a donkey. And he was traveling on the edge of a river. And he was exceedingly happy, and he was feeling aloof because he had studied much Torah. The translation is mine, so don't overthink about the translation, but the content is, okay, we have a rabbi, a great rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer. We'll learn more about him, maybe. We'll see some stories about him. A great hero. The son of Rabbi Shimon, also Rabbi Shimon, a very, very pivotal uh, figure in the early, we're talking early second century. And he's traveling, and he's going from this town called Migdal Gedor, and he's coming from his rabbi's house, fantastic, and he was on a donkey, a lot of details, and he's at the edge of the river, wonderful, and he was super happy, and he was feeling a little bit, you know, full of himself, or a little bit aloof, because he studied a lot of Torah. Okay, and what happened? He chanced upon a man who was very ugly. So he meets someone who was super ugly. Okay. The man said to him, peace be upon you, my teacher. So the man, the ugly man, greets him and says, oh, this famous rabbi who's on the donkey, who's traveling, oh, shalom aleichem, how are you? Peace be unto you. So what did Rabbi Eliezer do? Rabbi Eliezer did not respond. Instead, he said, empty one. How ugly is that person? He's like, dude, why? You're so ugly. So he tells him. He calls him empty one, which, by the way, in, in Talmudic lingo, is the worst, the, worst, <coughs> the worst insult is to call someone an empty one. Because what does it mean someone is empty? means they're, they're empty. They got nothing. And, and in Rebel Yezer's uh, uh, vernacular, empty means empty from wisdom. Empty from, you know, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, what does it mean empty? They're, they're a vessel that's empty, right? And just think about that idea. What, what could be, how can a person be empty? Yeah, but how can it be empty? It means that, uh, that it could be full, right? Why is he equating ugly with empty? Well, who says he is? Well, according up to now. Well, he calls him an empty person and he's also an ugly. Maybe it's both. Or maybe it's one. I don't know. You tell me. Well, how does he know? He just sees him. How does he know he's empty? I don't know. <laughs> well, let's get, we'll continue. He's just, well, he's, he's insulting him. You said empty is an insult. Yes, empty, uh, empty, so is, empty is an insult. And here's his famous rabbi. How, is he, how would he treat this poor guy? <laughs> I don't know, man. These are good questions. You know, you <laughs> meet people by their dress or something. That would Probably make him the guy was not <laughs> radiating wisdom. <laughs> He's certainly violating the, 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 the Jewish principle of being kind. So it would seem like empty means food. Ah, here you Yeah, but empty also means what's the opposite of being empty? Full. Full. So that means that humans are either empty or full, or somewhere in between, which is an interesting definition. It means if you know, if you can be full of evil or full of kind of shit. Okay. Full of spirituality. That's what this guy was talking about. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It seems like he's a fool, but it's clearly an insult. And then he tells him also, you're empty and you're also ugly. And then he says to him, uh, perhaps all the people in your city are this ugly. He says to him, maybe everyone, maybe you come from an ugly city, everyone's just super ugly. So he answers, I don't know. I don't know. 
Rather, go and tell the craftsman who made me how ugly is this vessel that you made. So he comes back with the best zinger. And he says, oh, you know what? Go to the craftsman who made me and then tell him, why did you make something so ugly? And obviously, who's the craftsman that made them? It's the Almighty. And Rebelezer says, he realized, oh, goodness, I just insulted the Almighty, kind of, because I insulted the vessel that the Almighty made. Once he realized that he had sinned, he descended from his donkey. Once again, we find out more details about this donkey, okay, and prostrated himself before him and said, please forgive me. He realized he made a mistake, clearly, and he said, he asked for forgiveness. Uh, the person responded, I will not forgive you until you go to the craftsman who made me and tell him how ugly is the vessel you made. So he's not willing to budge. So Rebelezer followed him until they arrived at his, at his city. So he's going, he's trying to tell him, forgive me, no, the, he's following him. The people of the city went out to greet him. So they see the great rabbi, Rebelezer, who, by the way, we'll find out more details about him, a, an astonishing personality. And they all go out, they see the rabbi coming. And he's walking next to this donkey, following this super ugly guy. And he's talking to him. And they say, oh, let's go, let's go, let's go greet the rabbi. So they all go out and they greet him. And they say, peace be unto you, Rebbe, Rebbe, master, master. They're so excited to see him. And the ugly man says, wait a minute, to whom are you calling Rebbe Rebbe? Who are you calling Rabbi Rabbi? Who are you according so much honor to? So they said, the guy was walking behind you. Uh, he said, if this is a rabbi, may there not be like him in Israel. Because if this is what you mean by saying a rabbi, people shouldn't be like him. This is not what we're looking forward to. The people of the city inquired, why not? Like, why are you saying something about the Rabbi Eliezer? So he recounted the entire, the entire story, he told him the whole episode, you know, that he called him ugly and whatnot. So the people persisted and said, despite this, forgive him because he's great in Torah. So yes, he made a mistake, but forgive him nonetheless. He said, for you I will forgive him, provided that he does not regulate himself in behaving as such. I'll forgive him, but not because of him, because of you guys. But he, only if he, he, he stops acting like that. Rabbi Eliezer immediately entered the house of study and taught, a person should always be soft like a reed and not stiff like a cedar. And therefore, a reed merited that a quill is made from it to write Torah scrolls to fill in Emezuzas. Thus concludes the Talmud. Mm-hmm. They're saying you should forgive. They're saying, well, he did forgive, and then Rabbi Lezer comes with this, means he teaches this lesson as a result of the story. Mm-hmm. person should always be soft like a reed, not stiff like a cedar, and therefore, when you want to write a Torah scroll, you need to have a quill. Why well, do you make a quill out of a reed? Fantastic. And then use this reed to write... Torah scrolls, right, tefillins, right, all the things that we use uh, in, in the myth for, to make mitzvahs. Fantastic. Thus concludes the Talmud. And you read it, and of course there's some questions. The, the obvious question is, you know, well, what's the most obvious question? This is not typical of a famous rabbi to you say that think kind so. of thing. Yeah. You wouldn't think so. Yeah, that would like, like uh, totally out of character. It's so it seems, right? It seems like it's, you know, especially if someone, you know, someone, he did study a lot of Torah. That's not, yeah. that, that, that much was not up for, for debate. Right. Clearly he studied a lot of Torah. Um, this is one of the, one of the names that we see again and again, ubiquitous across the Talmud. Yeah. Uh, fantastic personality, and he seems to be very rude. No? Is that a fair ass- assessment? Yes. Yeah. Well, he's, he's stuffed with arrogance, you know. Arrogant. Than well, it says, it says that he was a little bit aloof. It says it very clearly that he was a little bit aloof. And about what he writes. It seems like he lost it for a minute. About what? He writes it. Yeah, he didn't happen to any of us. Yes. His true feelings came out. Think about it again. And what's interesting is, 
to point out is that Rebbe Eliezer realized that he sinned. Mm-hmm. Means he realized he took the lesson, which is which is admirable. Means despite the fact that we're, it seems a very negative uh, reflection of his character, but on the other hand, once he realized that he sinned, he and everyone sins. He started to try to repent, and, and he followed the guy, and he persisted. And, and, and after he, got, he was granted forgiveness, he taught us an enduring lesson for all time. And he said, I was still like a cedar, and, that, and that's why I sinned, and that's why it's important for me to, to, you know, to, be, to be soft like a reed. And then he had this insight and says, oh, that's why Torah scrolls are written from that. Because to tell you that even before you write a Torah scroll, even before you delve into Torah study, it's important to realize that what writes this? What is the tool that we use for this? A reed. And what's a reed? Very soft, very easygoing, very wavy, you know, not, not stiff. But I, am, I still don't understand this parable with regard to reed and cedar, why you shouldn't be stiff. Well, I think what what does stiff mean in this? Stiff, like stiff naked. No, no, I know what, what it means in this context. Ah. <clears throat> Should you be steadfast in your studying of Torah and your beliefs? Because this characteristic. Yeah, yeah. Mean, it means means Vitaly's saying, wait a minute. So someone be wishy washy. Wishy washy doesn't sound good, right? Yeah, yeah. steadfastness. Could Stead be a foreshadowing of what Teddy Roosevelt said: walk softly, but carry well, I was thinking that he said it, but I think he got it from somebody way back, like Cicero or one of those. It seems like, yeah. I'm going to look it up. Right, but I think there's a difference between between being resolute, you know, and you know, you know, having strong. You know, morals and beliefs, and like, resolute, I think, is a good thing. No, mm-hmm. uh, while maybe being stubborn or uh, or arrogant or obnoxious is 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 maybe the other side of the coin, where it's it's stiff and and, and not willing to accept anyone else. It means the guy was clearly ugly. Now, what ugly means is up for interpretation. Does it mean that he was physically ugly? Does it mean that he was spiritually ugly? Maybe that's linked to the empty. He was empty. He didn't have Torah. He didn't have actions. He didn't have midos. He didn't have something. But uh, he didn't know that, or, or he could know that what he could see. So probably he was ugly physically. Obviously, the guy, this ugly guy, was well, not that empty but he because didn't have he taught him a lesson. Yeah. But he wasn't yeah, ugly wasn't in the evil sense, uh, probably. I mean, well, not be, evil, but maybe yeah. empty. Maybe empty well, in, in itself is, is devoid of, of, of beauty. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but the, the initial thing he says to the rabbi is, peace be upon you, uh-huh. Noel said, which is not Probably a sign not. of someone who he's he's res- he's respecting the Torah teacher, which means he can't be that empty. Yeah, yeah. He was smart enough to see value in you. Come from West Africa. Yeah. Africa. Yeah. That's telling me it's a physical issue. Something really? physically is but not... You don't have an individual... Yeah, that's. Yeah, I think that's probably the simplest understanding, um, on, on a surface level. I'm willing to argue that he, that what Rabbi Eliezer saw was was more spiritual. Uh, well, but let, let's put that on the side. Let's start from the beginning he might here. Sin or something that he had. Yeah, uh, let's start. Let's start from the beginning here. So we're telling the story of Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Shimon. Um, so the name Rabbi Shimon does that ring a bell to anyone? Yeah, uh, just don't remember how. Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Anyone remembers that name? 
Does everyone sees my uh, my garish beard? Yeah, yeah it looks <laughs> like you, it's grown a little bit. Yes. So the Omer, yeah. so the Omer, there's oh, the, there's a custom the not to shave day. till the thirty third day of the Omer. Today's day right. twenty two. Yeah. So uh, okay. we're counting uh, twenty two. Yes. Uh, now mm. on day thirty three of the Omer. So that's when it stops, this, these, uh, uh, these restrictions. Um, what happened to day 33 of the Omer? So two things happened. Number one, the students of Rabbi Akiva sees dying there was some sort of plague, and that um, many of the students of Rabbi Akiva, the great personality, he, uh, they, that they died. Uh, and then they stopped dying on the 33rd day. But also, it's the yard site, it's the anniversary of the death of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon is, according to Jewish tradition, the author of the Zohar, which I have never read. Um, but Zohar is the is the book of Jewish mysticism. And I read one page and didn't understand the word of it. Oh yeah, and that's in Aramaic. That would help you. But that Zohar, which I read, you're going yeah. to come back. Ludenberg <laughs> <laughs> said in the Zohar, so try to understand the Zohar for the sake of understanding. I'm honored reading that, and when I get to a point where I'm, it's me, I just drop it. I can't sit there. Well, Madonna, Madonna reads you call Madonna it. or Debbie, Debbie Moore to ask. Uh, so Zohar and Kabbalah is yeah. the same thing? No, Zohar is the... Uh, flagship book of Kabbalah. That's like the uh, Kabbalah is the is Kabbalah is the field of of study, and Zohar is the is the original book, so to speak. Uh, it was never meant to be publicized. That's clear. So it's like Das Kapital and communism, right? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like Das Kapital. Yeah. Uh, did you refuse? It's like Das Kapital and communism. Sort of like well. Well, I was going to say the analogy is Zohar is like the, the, the Torah, whereas the Kabbalah is the, is the Talmud, right? Well, no, Kabbalah is, is, the, is the field or the method of study. The word Kabbalah, what does the word Kabbalah mean? To know. No. To receive. To receive, that's right. Why is that? Because Kabbalah is meant to be, is, is the last frontier of the oral Torah, wherein it's, it's, you read it, right? And you have no idea what you're reading, right? That's what happens. Because it's designed like, like someone like, like a gadata to not be understood. You have to be, if you receive it from someone who, who received it from someone, etc., yeah. well, then you'll understand it because then they'll explain it to you. Like, uh, but if you just read it, it it's, it's gibberish. Why often. did you not read it? You I don't know. Interested they're, they're, they're never, you know, we have, we have a policy. Yeah. Yeah, the 40 thing, people like saying the 40 thing, but there's a, there's a policy. Well, there's a lot of history here. We launched the history lesson here. But um, Zohar was super popular in the 1500s. Uh, there was a calamity, probably the greatest calamity, well, save the Holocaust. I'm saying those kind of calamities. But the spiritual calamity that happened to Jewish people in, who knows, probably since the start of the Second Temple, was the false messiah of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi. And he... he uh, well, he, uh, pe- people believe, he claimed that he was the Messiah, and he did a lot of Kabbalah, was a super scholar, uh, and he was, you know, doing uh, dubious things with Kabbalah, and interpreting the Torah, and changing things in the Torah, and he actually got, like, enormous, enormous swaths of the Jewish people to believe that he was the Messiah, and they sold their houses, and when we went to Israel, he eventually, on his way to Israel, stopped up in Turkey, converted to Islam, 
And, you know, because the Sultan said, okay, either you convert to Islam or we chop your head off. So he says, okay, I'll convert to Islam. But then he, then he said, no, I'll, I'm, st- I'm still the Messiah. This is all part of the test. And he had this great pr- promoter, this guy Nathan of Gaza. And basically, it tore the Jewish people apart. Uh, and it was primarily, chiefly as a result of Kabbalah. Since then, uh, if someone, like, made a big deal of Kabbalah, everyone was, like, worried, oh, no, Shafan's feet. We had bad, we had very bad experiences with people learning Kabbalah or teaching the wholesale or in the wrong hands. Uh, that's why, by the way, uh, Luzzato, uh, in the 18, early 18th century, so he was also a really young scholar, also kind of the same, the same prototype of Shabbat Tzvi somewhat, like 20 years old, brilliant genius, super, super into Kabbalah, and just a remarkable character. And he was in Italy, that's where he's from. But they said, oh no, we've seen this before. This is already hundreds of years after Shabbat Tzvi. But the community says, we've seen this before, we don't like it, right? And they excommunicated him, they kicked him out of the, out of the city, you know, and he actually he moved to Israel, um, which is crazy, you know? And even in the 18th century, the big titanic battles that existed between the Ibishits and Emden controversy, you know, where you had two of, like, the chief rabbis of, of, of all of, uh, or two of the foremost rabbis of the 18th century uh, had this enormous public battle where one of them claimed that the other one was a secret Sabbatean, which means still a follower of Shabtai Tzvi, even hundreds of years afterwards. And it tore apart the Jewish community. It was just a disaster. Uh, That's one of the reasons why today, you know, Kabbalah is, I I want to say it's shunned, but it's it's, people are very wary of it. Another reason why people are wary of it is because of the Madonna Demi, Demi Moore thing, wherein, you know, people that know zero about Torah, uh, but are able to be spoon-fed some cute ideas that they can, that, that they could parrot over, but they don't even know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, play games yeah, red string. red string. I actually said this, once I said, oh, yeah, this red string, and the guy's like, you mean this? He yeah. pulls out his red string. Uh, yeah, but it means it, it's, it's just getting the surface, it's just you know, taking things that are cutesy and nice, and, but not at all understanding what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Michael Berg is the guy that... Yeah, Michael and Karen, yeah. his wife, yeah, the Kabbalah Center. Uh, either way, it's... Uh, so, so there is, it's just curious, so there is, so, in order to become a rabbi, uh, with all the, the courses you all have to take, you don't have to take anything on Kabbalah if you don't want to? Uh, no, not, nothing in Kabbalah, and... Um, Kabbalah is best left to the people that are already at the advanced stage of knowing all of Talmud. Like, if you know all of Talmud, all of it, and that's a lot, not many people know, like maybe, you know, one of every thousand scholars, scholars knows all of Talmud, then there's room, then there's room to talk. But that's it's it's disappointing it's disappointing because I think Kabbalah is fascinating. It is fascinating. I read lots on it. I'm okay, uh, okay. Well, the Talmud's fascinating also. No, no. But, but my, my himself writes this. He says, you know, the first four chapters he calls it the Paradise, which is the Orchard. He says, don't like, yeah, this is what's most important. But first, finish everything else, and then come back here, and then do this. You know. So yes, no one's arguing as to the importance of it and and how it's central to our religion, and we have a lot of core beliefs that are, 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 are you know, that were uh, um, just organized and crystallized with, with Kabbalah. Of course, Rabbi Shimon is held, like I said, the author, uh, according to the tradition of the, uh, of the Zohar, uh, is one of the major characters. He's the father of Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, and no one's doubting it. The, the point is, is that there's a great danger 
uh, of mass proliferation, mass dissemination of Kabbalah. Was Maimonides versed in Zohar? Uh, wow, that is, that is one of the best questions that has ever been asked. Um, because this is, this is the subject... It's the, su- it's the subject of enormous debate whether or not Maimonides was versed in, in Kabbalah. It seems on the surface that he was not, or at least he didn't, he didn't use that to influence some of uh, his writings, because we know that he's a rationalist and very much into that kind of, uh, of thought. Um, so it seems on, on surface level that he was not working with through the prism of Kabbalah, especially with books like A Guide to the Perplexed, which is, is a reflection of Jewish life, Jewish philosophy, Jewish understanding, Jewish law, Jewish practice, you know, through the lens of Greek philosophy, you know, very much a, a antithetical to Zohar. That being said, so that's why that, that, that seems to be the most simple understanding that Maimonides didn't have it or didn't use it. Well, I thought there Kabbalah are, didn't come, it wasn't into things until well, f- around the 15th century. No, so well, it wasn't, it wasn't out in the open. Yeah. Uh, but the Ramban, Ramban Nachmanides, who predated yeah. the, uh, the, discovery, the discovery or dissemination of the Zohar yeah. uh, in the public realm, he had Kabbalah for sure. It's clear. So even though he predated that. So Kabbalah existed beforehand. The question is, Maimonides have it? The simple answer is probably no. Uh, that seems to be the consensus. However, there are some pieces of evidence uh, in Maimonides' own ri- writings that he clearly had it. For example, um, Maimonides talks about someone who gets angry. And it says as follows, which is Hebrew. And it means... Someone who gets angry, it's as if they commit idolatry. And he says, this is what our rabbis told us. Which he's saying, this is reference in the Talmud. However, if you scour the Talmud, begin to end, top to bottom, right, right to left, left to right, upside down, diagonally, you won't find it. However, if you open the Zohar, you do find those words. That seems to be a very strong indication that maybe he had it in his edition of the Talmud. I'm saying there's a lot of debate about this, scholarly debate about that. I'm not trying to go off in different directions. Just what you said intrigued. You're saying anger, there's some sort of thing in the Kabbalah that says anger is tantamount to idolatry. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Why? So because is it, so it's against you? Uh, no, idolatry, not <laughs> adultery. Idolatry. idolatry. Yeah, I thought, no, but are you saying it's against Jewish law to be angry? Ever angry. Uh, to be angry or to act upon your anger? Is that the question? Well, even acting upon your I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's the Lord can be angry, maybe we, the, the well, it seems, anger uh, was no, kindled. But there's the other sources, even in the Talmud, you don't have to go to the, the Zohar, uh, that talk about anger, and, and it's a very negative thing. Uh, because when someone's angry, well, a- anger is linked with arrogance, because mm-hmm. I'm only angry because I think someone's, I'm better than someone else, or you know, no, some, no one else should have their way. If someone cuts me off, I get angry, right? Or, how do you cut me off, right? It's linked with feeling superior and thinking less of the other person. Uh, and it's also ignoring God, because if you think less of someone else, well, then you think that you're all, you're all it, then well, what do you mean? You're, you're a product of the Almighty. So... Uh, that's what it says. It, it, it's, it's taking you down the steps that someone who's angry at a certain, po- at a certain element of their, uh, of their actions and their behavior, well, then they're ignoring God. Anger, if, anger, but sin not. You can get angry, all right, in sense that this or that, the other thing, the Holocaust or something like that, or this or that action, or whatever, you can get angry, but sin not. 
That's what it well, says. When it says to burn the evil from your midst. Yeah, well, to I be mean, angry. I guess you could do that without being angry necessarily, but won't it be more effective if you have Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then the Talmud says in Yoma 41, called him out, I'll say it in English, because I don't hear it speaks Hebrew, right? Any natural Hebrew speaker? Um, every Talmud Chacham, every Torah scholar that does not revenge and avenge like a snake or a serpent is not a Torah scholar. Okay, so so it means obviously there's a, you know, there, there is a time and place for it. That, like you said, the Holocaust or evil, we don't, we don't believe in accepting that. We don't believe in, in that, you know, in, in, in condoning evil. Absolutely not. Uh, so what does it mean that anger is a bad thing? Well, not that kind of anger. You know, anger that's rooted in bad character is, is a negative anger. Either way, uh, that's to answer your question. Did my money have Kabbalah is a subject of fascinating. And, uh, and, and I, I would say uh, it's beyond the scope of this discussion. <laughs> because I don't know anything about it. That's the true answer. Rabbi Wolbert, so bottom line is a great yeshiva. Yeshivas they actively discourage, discourage students. They don't. They don't. They don't study it. I mean, to avoid the schism, right? A possibility of schism. No, it's not. Not just that. It's just. It's not. It's not appropriate. You know. It's. It's appropriate. It's best suited for someone who knows all of Talmud. Yeah, like if you look, the way I've always kind of understood it is if you looked at your study and your spirituality like you're like a house, like you're building a house, like lay your foundation and build your frame before you put in stained glass windows. And Torah is your foundation, Talmud is your frame, and Kabbalah is the stained glass window or the skylight. Like, or it's one of something that you don't even need. It's like one of those little. Uh, I mean, nobody needs a stained glass window. It's beautiful. It's, it's interesting, right. but nobody needs it. You need windows. Right, but you don't need beautiful windows. Yes, that's a nice, so. beautiful window. I like that. That's good. You can have plain windows. You can have a plain glass window, or you know, like it's beautiful. It's fascinating. There's value to it, but it's not essential. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah. Okay, so that's uh, Rabbi Shimon, his father, um, uh, and Rabbi Lezer's son. Now, we know that um, Hadrian, our old nemesis, he um, made a ban against Torah study. And he said, over studies Torah, gets executed. And we know many, many, many great rabbis at that time got executed. Uh, now, Rabbi Shimon, he didn't hear about it. He kept on studying Torah. And they said, okay, they put out a warrant for his execution, so to speak. So he went with his son, Rabbi Yasser, and he hid in a cave. Now, if you notice, anyone knows the story of him in the cave? They spent 12 years in the cave. And um, Talmud says that there was a miracle, that a, a, a stream of water and a carob tree sprouted, and they ate the carobs and drank the water, and they were submerged in sand uh, to their necks and studied Torah for 12 years. And after 12 years, uh, they hear this uh, announcement. Someone was walking around announcing, oh, uh, um, Hadrian died, you come out. So they all come out. And what do they do? And they, imagine, they've spent 12 years in a cave studying Torah, just them. You know? And in, in, I'm pretty sure that the, the tradition has it that they were studying Kabbalah. So you can imagine 12 years in a cave studying Kabbalah, and you come out and see the rest of the world. So what do they do? They see a guy on his field, like, you know, working in the field. So, they, so, so Rabbi Shimon says to him, um, he says to him, I, I don't get it. Like, these people are, like, abandoning the eternal world, and wasting their time with the transient world, with the passing world. So he, he looks at him, and then his, the guy's field just goes up, up in flames. 
And everywhere he's looking, everything's going up in flames. So then he hears this prophetic voice. He says, did you guys come out of the, did you guys come out of the cave to destroy the world? Get back to the cave. So they, they go back to the cave. Twelve months later, and it adds over here, twelve months later, which corresponds to the twelve months of, of, of purgatory. Interesting. And then they say, they hear another uh, prophecy that, uh, that, um, that, okay, you could you, you come out and um, find they're walking and they see a guy, it was, it was Friday afternoon, a guy's running around with two uh, flowers. And they say to him, why do you have two flowers? He says, I mean, for Shabbat. He says, Shabbat, well, why do you have two flowers? Just have one. So he says, no, 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 because there's one mitzvah of remembering Shabbat and one of observing Shabbat, one Zachor and one Shamor. He said, oh, the world still has, uh, there's still hope for humanity, and fine, they, they, uh, they calm down. That's the story. This is the personality. Uh, this is someone who clearly had little tolerance for people not being robustly replete so, with Torah. Clearly. So was it Shabbat when he came out the first time and the man was working in the uh, doesn't say that. No, 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 no. He was just working his field. He's the guy's like, you're wasting your time. You waste your time just making food. We had a cow tree sprouted up for us. You don't need. You don't need to worry about that. The Almighty will take care of you. Yeah. Clearly, that was their attitude, and we see this again, and again over here. And it, it's no. It's no. Uh, it doesn't seem to be like. It doesn't seem like it's any. Um, it, it seems like it, it, it's not a coincidence. Uh, Rebbe Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Rabbi Shimon. These were people that were living on a different world. Living in a different world. Now, um, let's, let's, let's look a little bit more deeply at, what, at how, we, how the Talmud describes the scene. Before you do that, yes, go ahead. Was this incident with the donkey supposed to happen before or after the cave? Uh, I assume it happened afterwards. Because then he hasn't really learned anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, not, he's not setting the guy's field on fire. That's... Uh, I guess that's a yeah, okay, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I, um, that's a good question. What's the significance of, the, of 12? 12 months 12 or 12 years? 12. I don't know. That's a good question. Because you find that elsewhere. It's not, not the good pa- pattern. We find it for Rabbi Akiva. He went to study for 12 years. Another one of the rabbis went for 12 years. I don't know. Well, that's a good question. For 12 years, but Plus 12 months. Well, at 12 months it says 12 months it says that that is the amount of time that someone could spend in the Jewish idea of Gehenna, right? Which is a maximum of 12 months. That's what it says. I don't know what the significance of that is. Why should that be, why should that be, um, why should that be the amount of time that they have to spend there? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, but maybe the 12 years, maybe it's, the simplest answer is that, it, well, it just happens to be that 12 years after they got there, uh, the Caesar died. I don't know. That's an unrealistic. Yeah, it doesn't seem, yeah, or maybe there's something to it. That's a good question. Uh, that, that's the right kind of attitude. Okay, so to ask those kind of questions, let's go back to the this, this, the, this, the setting here. So he's we're told about Rabbi Eliezer. So we know about him. He, he's clearly someone with very low tolerance uh, for uh, for emptiness, uh, and he's coming from Migdal Gedor. Migdal Gedor. This would be a lot a lot sweeter if you guys understood Hebrew. Um, Maybe we have to have the Hebrew class there. <laughs> um, now, it tells us where he's coming from. So maybe it's just telling us this, you know, where in Israel they are or where in the world they are. or Maybe it's insignificant. But if you know Hebrew, the word migdal means a tower. And gedor means a fence. So maybe that's just the name 
of the town that it's coming from. And then you would just have a question, okay, well, what's, what, how does it add to the story to tell us where he was coming from? doesn't seem to add to the story. Plus, the city itself has a very unique name. It's a tower of, of a, a fence tower, tower fence, right? Perhaps, this is one, and the Maharal, one of the commentators, says a, a tower. So a tower is a, sky, a skyscraper, right? That's, that's aloof, right? That's up in the air. That would seem very much in sync. Ivory tower. Like that, the idea that you're an intellectual and you're, you know, very full of yourself, and it ties in with kind of elitism and being aloof. That's that's that, it is, yeah. So that here, elitist. There you go. Um, what was the name of the tower in the Lord of the Rings? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has a, it had a big wall around it too. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Yeah. And the fence could be like a separation. Plagiarism. Well, with an army of orcs. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe the guy was an orc. What it's telling us, perhaps. Building a fence Perhaps it's telling us. So, one of the commentators points out says, this is a strange name. This is not a regular name of a city. It says, Middal Tower, why? Because he had haughtiness. You know, he felt aloof. But where did that come from? It came from the Torah study. And, 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 and we can say a fence, the idea of a fence goes very well with, with, uh, with, um, with Torah, as we know, uh, because what does, you know, what does the Torah do? It makes someone separate, it makes it distinct. It means he's, he's not a member of society. He stood in the cave, he's in the cave for 12 years studying. He, he was fenced out, he means he was like mm-hmm. separated. You know, he was elitist on one hand, and he was distinct, and he wasn't a man of the people. He didn't know what everyone was going through. He's separated. You know, there's a fence between him and everyone else. So that, that was his condition. And that's just a reality. Mm-hmm. You know? And the Torah is telling us, you should know, this is a natural consequence of someone who studies Torah. When someone studies Torah, there's a trade-off, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Number one, you're going to be elevated. You're, you're going to, you are doing, you're studying the Almighty's Torah. How could you not walk out and feel great about it? But there's a danger to feeling great about that. Why? Because what, what happens when you see the other guy? You see someone else and you say, it's wasted his time, right? This is empty one. This is someone who's so ugly, someone who's so void of this greatness, mm-hmm. you know? So yes, it's a wonderful thing, but the Talmud perhaps is telling us that it's very important for you to realize that to- studying Torah is a-, a necessity. However, together with every stage of growth in Torah, there ought to be a parallel stage of growth in humility. Why? Because otherwise, you'll be, you'll be the straight tower, you'll, but you'll be separate from everyone. And you know what it looks like? It looks at someone like Rebeliezer, who, um, who made a big mistake. Mm-hmm. And he himself realized it. He says, you know what? Be like a, be like a, uh, a, a reed. What happens to a reed? So all that pointed out. As a reed grows, it, it curls over more. So the more it grows, the more, the more humility it has. Yeah. As opposed to the cedar that goes straight up. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's telling us... you. This is all is such a you know this is all telling us that every stage of growth that we have to have in our Torah has to be accompanied by a growth in humility. No. I was just gonna say, and he also said that something like that the quill will remind you of this. So when you're writing with the quill, you're just remembering that you shouldn't humility. be aloof, that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be separated. And mm-hmm. and perhaps he's saying that this is writing the Torah that the Torah has to be encased in a in an individual who is. Who was humble? Finds again. Who who was who delivered us the Torah? 
Moses, who was the hum- most humble man that ever lived? Moses. And we know that there's lots of parallels between, between humility and Torah greatness. Why? Because that is the most perfect vessel for housing Torah is humility. And that's what it's making, and it's, it's point that Torah answer, and he himself realized it, which I think is important for us before we go on and castigating him. It's very clear that the, you know, the, Torah, the, the Talmud does tell us this negative story about him, but it also tells us that he got it. And what did he do immediately after the story happened? It, it clicked. You know, it, you know it, it, he got it. It's like, oh, that's, you, know, you have to be as soft like a reed. I made that mistake. And hopefully he'll, you know, he'll rectify that. And our Excellent. prayer book says something about growing tall like the leaders, tall like the cedars in Lebanon. Yeah. Ours is Lebanon, yeah. Um, and we, yeah, the cedars of Lebanon are the, the those are the majestic, uh, majestic trees. Um, but uh, in fact, the great, another uh, ironic irony uh, is that uh, the forefathers are compared to cedars by Bilam, and that's such a fact, the next source we'll get to it, hopefully. Um, we still have a lot more to do with this source. Uh, and uh, the temple was compared to the uh, to a cedar. So very interesting how cedars seem to be shunned. There. Yes. Okay, so what, what's the next thing we find out about? So he's traveling from Middal Dor from the house of his teacher. It's telling us, it's not just telling us this, the, the, the town, it's telling us, it's telling us the condition. What's the next thing we find out about him? He was traveling on what kind of animal? Was it, was it a horse? <laughs> was, it, was it a carriage? Was it like, who, who cares? Like, uh, let's say it was a horse. What does it matter? Let's say he was walking. You know, why is it significant to tell that he was traveling on a donkey? Because donkey stubborn. Because materialism. He just okay. became like a mass. Okay, so uh, so Dan, what do you say? Say it again. Probably in the past, it represents materialism because the the word chamor and chomer donkey in in all of Jewish literature is is compared to materialism. In fact, the body, of course, the Torah has two hundred and forty eight limbs. That's how the demarcation of the, of the limbs of the body. And the uh, gematria of chamor, of donkey, also the word chomer, which is the same word, just different inflection, means which means materialism, is also 248. So he was traveling with a donkey. But what does it say about him? Was he traveling with the donkey? Or traveling? He was traveling on the donkey. He was on the donkey. Who else do we know? I was thinking the same. That travels on a donkey. Jesus. Mashiach. Mashiach. Very good. Bilam. Bilam, excellent. So was I wrong with what I just said? What'd you say? Jesus. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I'm not familiar. Is that, is that right? You travel on a donkey? Yes. Yeah. But isn't there something like in, Jewish in, sources. Our, in, in Jewish our sources. scriptures where it says the Messiah uh, will be on a donkey? Yes, so that's uh, Dan pointed out. Now, but Bilam traveled with a donkey, but it's very important to remember. The donkey was on the same, was parallel level with it. He had a conversation with it. He had a dialogue with the donkey. He wasn't on top of the donkey. He had a dialogue with the fact, we're told in the Talmud. Well, he was riding it. When this, it he was riding it, okay, yeah. but he wasn't on the donkey. Because it means on as in superior to the donkey. Okay. We're also told in the Talmud that he used to sleep with his donkey. He clearly, he's not being presented as someone who, who is on the donkey. In fact, we have three people in Besides Rebel Yezer, in Jewish literature, that travel on donkeys. One of them is Messiah. Who else knows what the other two are? Abraham? Moses. Clearly, these are, these are three sluggers in, uh, in, in Jewish 
in, Jew, in the Jewish world. You know, Abraham, Moses, and Messiah, they share a commonality that they travel on the donkey. So what are you getting at? Okay, okay, so let's, let's get to this. Now, well, let's just talk about these three people. So Mo, Abraham, Moses, and Messiah. What's their roles in... Let's, let's give it a nice spin. What are the roles of Abraham, Moses, and Messiah in Tikkun Olam? How, what's their significant role in Jewish history? Abraham, of course, he... He was the first... But what, what ideas he bring into the world? Monotheism. Monotheism, monotheism. excellent. Moses, what did he do with the idea of monotheism? What did he propel? He is the father of the nation, so to speak. He mm-hmm. gave the Torah, which made monotheism a, a mainstay by the Jewish people. Thus, the idea of God before Abraham, okay? For Abraham, it's not known to anyone. Abraham comes now the ideas in the world. Abraham introduced the idea of monotheism to the world. Moses takes that idea and brings it to the nation. Mm-hmm. What does Messiah do? Brings it to the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Thus, Abraham, Moses, and Messiah are three parts of a process of fixing the world entirely. Moses, Abraham gets it started. Moses brings it to Judaism, to the Jewish people who are going to uh, bring it to the rest of the world. And Messiah is going to be the clincher, right? Mm-hmm. Clincher to finish, to finish that all. Mm-hmm. We're told about these three people, they all travel on top of the donkey. What's the, what's the significance? Perhaps we could say the significance of it is that uh, a Donkey is, is, uh, is, is, we said, it's materialism. In order for someone to become great in, in, in Jewish life, they have to become superior masters over the physical. The idea of God, what's that? It's a very spiritual idea. What is the greatest hamper and obstacle prevent, pre- preventing someone from achieving that? Their homer, their inner donkey, so to speak, their inner animalistic side. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were, Abraham, of course, as well, but Abraham, Moses, and Messiah, they are such masters that they are entirely separate, and they're on top of that. To them, they have a separation of their physical and who they are. They're completely in charge, completely in control of their physical, entirely. And that's how they're successful. That's why we're told these are the examples of people riding on donkeys, because these are the ones who are the greatest individuals, thus the conduits, to achieving these great ends. Yeah. So is Eliezer making this parallel himself, or the Talmud is telling us this, making this connection? <sighs> well, it seems like Rabbi Eliezer is not someone to sneeze at. He is on top of the donkey. He's on top. He, he's in total mastery of his, of his, of his, of his physicality. So However, what's, what's missing? So this is an idea presented to us by the Talmud, or this is... Oh, this is the... the, the what, well, which is the idea of the donkey? No, 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 no. This parallel of him to Abraham and Moses. Well, that, that's us are. analyzing the Talmud, but it's not... Uh, the commentators on the Talmud have done that. What's missing is his humility. Huh? That's what I'm asking. Like, did he elevate himself to that? Well, he got there. Or? He got there um, probably, you know, via his <laughs> behavior, his Torah study, his dedication. Um... However, he was not Abraham. What's Abraham renowned for? What's, what's the, you know, Abraham is, is, is kindness. Abraham is the leadership. You know, Abraham is the one who had the heart for everyone. Abraham had more than just dominance over his, 
physicality, but he also had the other crucial element of leadership, which is acceptance of others and tolerance of others. You know, and, 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 and welcoming others, and even people that, like we said, he meets the three idolaters, and what does he do? He brings them in. He, he, you know, he, was, he, was, he courted the people that were empty and brought them aboard. And that's what uh, Rabbi Eliezer was missing. But, you know, on uh, uh, an individualistic side, means from him himself and his personal character, and his pers- he had control and dominance of his physicality, absolutely. He was on a donkey. And when you say riding on a donkey in the in Jewish literature, you're saying a lot. You're not just telling us his mode of transportation. You're, also, he, you're telling us his mode of living. You're telling us his, 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 his dominion that he had over his body. Okay, uh, then we say he's running at the edge of the river. So this one I couldn't figure out. He's traveling on the edge of the river. That's such a... Tom is not saying, you know, he's not saying it to us. Oh, well, where he was traveling, you know, it's, it's, there's something to it. And what does a river symbolize? I don't know. Tell me. I don't know. I'm, th- I'm still knows? an open-ended question. <laughs> Time. 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 You beat the Flow. Flow. Because it was a desert area. A river would have been something that brought wealth. It was something to be highly valued. So that he was, he was happy, he was in a good mood, he was you know, feeling on top of the world, traveling by the water source. That would have been a good thing. Well, water rep- represents Torah, right? Okay. And he was on the edge, so he's on the, uh, at this lofty place, or the edge between the spirituality and the material world. Uh, because of his Torah study. Uh, no, don't, 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 don't stop. Well, so you're saying maybe that he he was used to being in the water. He was used to studying Torah, and now he suddenly got... Maybe that's... Maybe maybe that's, just some, yeah, that's not bad. Something like that. Like, hey, he's always... He's not used to this kind of environment. Like, he spent the 12 years in the... Or 13 years in the cave, and he just came from his house of study. Who knows how many years he spent there. And he's always been in the water. And now he got out of his comfort zone, and look what it brought him. He wasn't ready. He was at the edge of the water. He had just left the water. I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, which came with us now. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. He, he was in the water. He used to be in the water. That's where he was comfortable with. That's what he would have been fantastic with. He got out of his environment and actually got himself in trouble. So is there an analogy, then, that they were up to water in their necks in the cave? Well, they were up in sand. Excuse, oh, excuse sand, me, sand. in sand. I'm sorry, I thought you there was, there was the water, the, the little spring of water that came next to them. I don't know. I, I don't know. This is a good question. Uh, okay. Uh, so he was very happy, and he felt very good about himself. And uh, the guy says, empty one. He calls him empty one. Like I said, I think when it says empty one, it's clearly uh, in the, uh, referencing the fact that he, that he, uh, that he was empty of, of Torah. And I want to argue also maybe that he, he was so ugly, perhaps... It was ugly also in, in character. It seems like, according to Rabbi Ezra, the only thing that he's, only that's going to appear on his purview is someone's character. You know, someone's righteousness, uh, you know, someone's dedication to, towards spiritual endeavors. I think so. And that's why he said to him, well, why are you so ugly? <laughs> why are you so ugly? I have a, my, one of my grandmothers. She's like, uh, she grew up in... Uh, Romania and Hungary. She's a, like a 95-year-old hilarious, you know, hilarious woman, my mother's mother. But every time I see her, she says, why are you so ugly? 
so ugly. It's, 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 it's her joke. That she, like by my wedding, she went over to my wife and went over to Chaya and said to her, I don't know what you saw in him. I don't know. <laughs> so it always reminds you of like, why are you so ugly? But he's clearly looking past physicality. He's looking at the... That's what I would think. I think that's a, that's, that's a good <laughs> argument. And what does the guy tell him? But how can he know his character if he just met him? I don't know. That's another good I question. I agree. I have a hard time thinking it's, it's not his physical thing. He meets him for the first time. They clearly have not had an exchange except that the man tells the rabbi, you know, how wonderful, how was he like Peace be, Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. That, that, that shows some, some character. It shows some character and a level of respect that he's willing to give another. He's also willing to give him if he changes, changes his ways. How can he respond to him? How can he respond to him that he'll only meet him ugly? People ugly and simple, like in, in character? If that That's a good was, question. If it, was a, if it was a spiritual ugliness, could he respond to him? How can you go to the one that made me ugly in character? That's a good question. If it was ugly in character, then... It doesn't seem like his response is fair. Well, well let, 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 let's, let's work it uh, uh, a piecemeal here. So he says to him, is everyone in your town so ugly? Yeah, I can understand Well, that. maybe he's saying, you know, it's just an ugly town. Yeah. Like, or maybe he's saying... You're a corrupt village. Yeah, you're in a town that maybe no one studies Torah or no one is involved, and that's your environment, that's your surroundings. And one of the guy, the guy comes with this zinger of all zingers. He tells him, uh, go talk to God. the man who made me. Uh, the, the, the craftsman. We find in the in the Mishnah in the chapters of the fathers, we find the uh, following lesson when it says uh, that if you study a lot of Torah, don't don't consider yourself so great because that's why you were created, you know. And if you have a lot of Torah and someone else does not have a lot of Torah, don't feel better than them because, well. If you have so much, well, then you're, you're judged on a much higher degree of, you know, culpability. As opposed to someone else, well, not so. So like John F. Kennedy, to whom much is given, much is yes, expected? Yes, is yes, point? yes. So, um... Did he say that? Yeah. I think it was also... It may be. Now well, we're talking about going back to Cicero on a couple of things, so... <laughs> Maybe, maybe the answer. I think the question is a good question, but it does seem to indicate from his response that it's, it was more of a like an external. But maybe he's saying like this: You know what? The craftsman who made me, anyone who the Almighty makes, has a soul and has something beautiful about them, and something admirable about them. And in fact, we're, we find out in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, it says, "Who is the wise man? He who learns from everyone, because everyone has something to contribute, right?" Because that's the way the Almighty designed it. Right? The Almighty made everyone individually. Everyone looks different. Everyone has some different personality. Everyone's different. And everyone is handcrafted by the Almighty. So when someone says, oh, you have nothing to offer. You're empty and you're ugly. Nothing to contribute. Nothing to learn from. Well, even someone who's not entirely righteous is still something to learn from. So essentially what Rabbi Lezer was saying is that, no, the Almighty made something that there's nothing admirable about. No redeeming quality. Not only that, but he is also suggesting that everybody in that man's city is equal to the man. Well, he's asking. 
it's it's kind of weird because he asks everyone in the city so oddly. He's saying maybe that's why you don't have that that same character. And he says, well, I don't know, which is the best response ever. But you know, you, you taught that class on love your neighbor. Yeah. About the the toaster chest got a bunch of rotten fruit in it, but there's some diamonds in there. There's always something the redeeming. And he was just looking at the rotten fruit, not looking at the diamonds. Yeah, but maybe to to answer to answer your question, uh, the diamond comes from the Almighty. You know, because the Almighty makes everyone's soul different, everyone's soul, everyone's character has something good about them. Uh, it's impossible to be entirely, entirely, entirely corrupt. Well, it's unlikely to be entirely, entirely corrupt. Uh, so, uh, so that's that. And, you know, the whole reed and, uh, and cedar thing. So it, it seems like I, I, I want to just point out, once again, to Rabbi Eliezer's uh, credit, he takes this lesson to heart. Uh, and, and, it, and it's a lesson that... that it's in the Talmud, and I think it's probably most appropriate for people who make efforts to grow that they are likely to face this great obstacle. You know, I, I think of, I had a, a, a friend of mine, I was, I was uh, studying this with one of my students, uh, recently married, so I said to him, well, what's going to happen? Are you going to get home? And you know, look at your wife, says, I just spent an hour and a half with the rabbi studying Talmud. What did you do? Like that, he's like, that's exactly what my attitude's going to be. You know, just look at me. I just study. I just study. You know, it's a, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. The automatic result of someone working on their character, on their behavior, studying Torah, whatever it may be, that they automatically are, 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 are. There's a tendency to look down on someone else who does not do that. It's like when you don't diet, right? And then you're pushing your cart through uh, the store, and you see someone like there by the candy section, mm-hmm. like loading up their cart. Like it's very hard to not judge them because. Look at me. I'm on the diet. Like, look at you, you know? And the Torah is telling us, hey, Rabbi Lazarus is a great scholar, right? But he had, he, he <laughs> went through the challenge that faces many, st- in fact, probably all of them. We're in every stage of growth is another reason to be arrogant, another reason to look down at the next guy. Especially you're the top, you're, 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 you're the top of the tower, right? You're on top of the skyscraper. And you see some lowly dude at the bottom, it's very hard to say, this person has something to teach me. Right? So, and then he, it, it clicks to him, and he gets off the donkey. Right? And he prostrates himself. He lowers himself. He's I'm not on the donkey anymore. I don't want to be on the donkey. He lowers himself, and starts asking forgiveness. Right? It clicked to him. He, he, he got it. He, he got the message, and then after he finally secured his forgiveness, he went and taught this lesson uh, for all time. Uh, uh, he himself, he says, I'm a victim of this. I overcame it. And you Torah scholars who are reading this, you also should make sure that be like flexible like a reed and not, and not stiff like a cedar. It is interesting in the story that the people of the city do the exact same thing to the rabbi that the man singularly what they do to him? They all go out and greet him, rabbi, rabbi. So the man wasn't really very different than the other people in the city. And they he's all greeted him with the same adulation. Uh, respect. Yes, respect. respect. And so, I wonder if they all, were all so ugly. <laughs> Did we find that? Doesn't say. <laughs> that's right, but it does suggest that their hearts are in the same place as yeah. the man by himself. Mm-hmm. So, anyhow, that's a very interesting piece of Talmud. Um, I think what we do see is an example of how, like, every word has meaning, and it's it's you know it paints a very vivid picture, but it's not just you know to you know to just 
a tantalize our imagination, but it's also to teach us a lesson. Can I ask a question? What you just said, this every word has a meaning. Now, this meaning, in your opinion or in the opinion of other scholars, uh, was it built into this layer of meaning one after another when by the writer of the, this parable, or later on people start reading it and say, oh, okay, wait a second, donkey means this. And no, these, these, these ideas thing. are very, very well established. Um, very well established. Uh, but so the, when it was written, it was designed already to find oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, of oh hidden yeah. meanings. Yeah, it's the meanings are covered, uh, but there's so many examples of it that it's abundantly clear. That it's not, it's not, it's not. You're not just working backwards, especially when you find different uh, puzzle pieces across the Talmud, which is remarkable. Like I remember another, uh, another, another uh, episode of the source. Where three different places in the Talmud, it says, uh, it, it's like you get a third and a third and a third. And it's another way to ensure that only someone who is well-versed in the Talmud will actually get that. Like, think about it. If you wanted to make sure, if you wanted to hide code, you know, in, uh, in I don't know, in a, in a book, well, you want only someone who reads the entire book to know, so what would you do? You put hints everywhere, but not anywhere, one place, overtly. Right? You wouldn't blatantly write it, you would, you would hide it. Torah sometimes wants, the Talmud wants sometimes only super scholars to get the lesson. So it's like a Da Vinci code. But why? Like, I mean, why learn yeah, lessons why? about exactly. humility yeah. and being kind? <laughs> why do you need to hide Why hide that? Well, I don't think this, this one is not so... Means that I think we could have come out with a lesson even if we just read it. Uh, but we learn a lot more about the reasonings for it. Uh, and I think there's other places in the Talmud that says the same lesson. So I, I don't think this one is something which had to be hidden so, so, so intently. But uh, some of the more philosophical, less behavioral ones, um, because it's not meant for everyone. It's not, it's not designed for everyone. You know, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The Talmud doesn't dispense secrets like gumballs. It's not something that you just sit back and relax and you have to toil over it. It wants you to earn it, you know. But it's designed for an advanced scholar, this advanced learner, whereas vast majority of Jewish population, your cobblers, your money, money changers, your butchers, they wouldn't get it. Yeah, but so we have, have <coughs> we have a general, we have, we have, we have a, we're a nation of scholars. Don't underestimate the, the Jews. We, we, you know, we've been for thousands of years, think about that, which document do we have today in the entire world, today, that's study more than the Talmud? Yeah. No, no I nothing. I understand. And, and the Talmud's thousands of years old. It's remarkable. So it, it does have lasting power, and we have, there's been millions of Jews throughout the centuries that have poured over, over, over the Talmud. You know, this has been the lifeblood of the Jewish people. But your peasant, your soldier, Jewish soldier, right? Yeah. Your, I don't know, like a regular guy so who how do, has to go about earning um, money for his life, which yeah. is, again, the vast majority of people. Yes, they are obviously literate, obviously they study Torah, but not to that extent to notice that a donkey is not really a donkey. Yeah, yeah I right. could have read this story many times, and I'm yeah. not sure I would have ever understood on a donkey, the significance of on the donkey. Mm -hmm. I would have probably never gotten that one. And there is no point, it's not a secret wisdom that has to be hidden from enemies, right? That is universal wisdom. Yeah, but I, 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 is your question, I think there's two ways to ask your question. I think your question, is your question, hey, what about those people? 
how do we get them to have vibrant Judaism? Is that the question? Or the question is, how do they not get the Talmud? The first one. The, the first one. Yeah. So the you essentially invented Hasidism. That's exactly the rationale of a behind Hasidut. The rationale is that there came a point in time where uh, a great many of the Jews were not able to uh, gain and glean uh, the same sort of vibrancy and vitality from the Talmud as, uh, uh, you know, and scholarship and wisdom. That's what the Jewish people always valued that. Like I said, Talmud, the greatest insult is to be an empty one, right? That's what we always valued. Those were, you know, high society were always the, the more learned and more uh, wisdom-oriented people. Well, you, come, you have a generation where people are, you know, more simple, more peasants, you know, and, that, that's, and that's what happened, you know, in the, in the, in the 18th, 19th century, 19th centuries. Uh, it was a low point for Jewish, see, Jewish exceptionalism is always there, and you always have great Jewish intellects. Um, even the aforementioned Karl Marx was Jewish, right, despite the fact he was baptized. Um, but uh, Jews, Jews always itself, but there was, there was a, 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 a significant portion of population that they weren't as uh, involved in, in the study, and they were kind of left out. So the uh, originators of Hasidism, they developed a philosophy uh, or uh, um, a movement that stressed the more uh, simple and uh, ingestible Parts of Judaism, uh, you know, made that the you know the forefront of, thus prayer, and thus having a rebbe. The idea of having a rebbe, so you have let's say one designated guy, and he'll teach and inspire others. Uh, the idea of community and unity, and getting together and having a wonderful meal and lots of uh, uh, arak and vodka and and potato purple, you know, we're in inspiring the people with the things that are you know that are that are more. You know that are more uh, just um, ingestible for the regular dude. You know, like a shtetl-based yes. Judaism. Yes, and well, that that was the idea, and they it saved Judaism well, because. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say, like, at a, at a vi- if you practice Judaism at a, and this, I realize my wording is going to mess this up, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you practice Judaism genuinely at a very basic level, you're going to spend Friday night with rabbis and scholars talking about the Torah and talking about the Talmud. You're going to spend 20-something hours every Shabbat. You're going to be not working. You're going to be sitting in the synagogue or sitting at somebody's house with people who know more than you studying this. And so even the average cobbler stops work for 25 hours every week and focuses on study which is much more study than the average Joe who's not practicing traditional Judaism would ever learn. But and so it's Hasidut, not like it's Hasidut, inaccessible knowledge. Right, like but you Hasidut institutionalized it. That's what they did. They institutionalized it. They made it the thing. Um, and, and you know what? Like, no one's going to argue in hindsight that they, despite it being super controversial and all the bans and all the excommunication and all the bad blood that happened, at the onset of Hasidism in the, in the 18th century, no one's going to argue in hindsight that Jewish people today would not be what we are, we would not have survived uh, and thrived to this extent if not for that movement. So yes, th- that, that, that was done and it was addressed by the great, great leaders of the time. Okay, that's that. We have, um, I went over to look at the, the other, other piece of Talmud. Um, this will be on your own. 
uh, I think that's another another <coughs> another little another link in the chain of trying to understand this idea of a reed and a cedar. We find in the Talmud where it compares uh, the blessing of Bilam to the curse of Achia Hashiloni. Uh, one of them gave a blessing, and one of them gave a curse, but the ble- the curse was more preferable because the curse was the curse the Jewish people like to be like a reed, and the blessing was the curse them to, to be like a cedar, and. It does, it's clearly this parallel, the comparison of a reed and a cedar. Uh, and it says some more details about how a cedar is, is able to withstand all the tumultuous uh, winds, wherein a cedar is uprooted. Uh, and then it has an addendum, and it has a very similar addendum, but not quite the same. So um, I wanted to look at that, and you know, maybe if anyone has anything interesting to share about that, email me or whatever. But that's that, guys. It was a lovely, lots of fun as usual. I apologize once again for being late. I will, uh, I will try to not do that again. But I appreciate everyone. Once again, tons and tons of fun. And I'm have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. And everyone, rest of your week. Yes, go ahead. Were you born in New York? Yes. Well, that's very interesting. The one thing I could never break her on saying was donkey instead of donkey. And she donkey. said, look, it's monkey, why can't it be donkey? <laughs> Wait, so how do you say it? You say donkey. And how do I say donkey? Donkey. Donkey. I don't know, my kids make fun of me, I say water. <laughs> I say water, like they say water. And I say water. And coffee. And they say coffee. It always tickles. It's, yeah. We worked the heck out of that donkey, didn't we? Donkey. Donkey. It's so subtle. Donkey. It probably it does it, does it like you know it's like fingers scratching chalkboard. My wife, some people you know when you hear. My wife always says monkey and monkey. Yeah. But not in the sound. Contemporaneous evidence that he ever lived. Not in the sound. Listen to the